Welcome to part one of Brick Moon Fiction's series, Strange Investigations. For the month of October, we'll be presenting a series of stories that focus on the weird, sometimes terrifying, but always strange. Brick Moon Fiction presents Arms Race, Episode 8, The Box, by Josh Trapani. Narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle. The doors to the prison infirmary fly open and four corrections officers drag in Sergeant Maury Johnson. He's screaming and writhing. Johnson's a large man, and the COs struggle to keep hold of him. Dr. Catherine Graham, who runs the unit, stands in conversation with Special Investigator Enrique Duarte. Rick and Kathy stare for a stunned second before Rick runs to assist the COs, and Kathy begins prepping for her new patient. Get him onto this stretcher, she orders, grabbing supplies. Several employee nurses join her. Has he been stabbed? Shot? No, ma'am, answers one of the COs, who has a crew cut and a prodigious gut and is so young that adolescent acne lingers on his forehead. He was in a secure area, alone, doors locked. With effort, the five men deposit Johnson onto the stretcher. The cameras cut out and when they came back he was on the floor, rolling around and bawling. The nurses raise the stretcher and wheel it over to the nearest bed. The cameras cut out? Rick asks. For a few seconds, they hoist Johnson from the stretcher onto the bed. His screaming continues. His eyes are rolled back in his skull and he's thrashing around such that it takes all of them to hold him down while he's restrained with straps. Not long enough for anyone to get in or out of the area, much less assault him, the officer concludes, face red and short of breath. As staff hook up Johnson to monitors and instruments, Kathy cuts away his uniform, looking for a wound. She can't find one, and he's fighting the restraints hard. Sergeant? she asks, but the only response is more screaming. I'm going to sedate him while we figure out what's going on, she states, then orders my dazzleam. A nurse hands her a syringe, but before Kathy can make the injection, the struggling and screaming cease. Johnson's eyes focus and he speaks, voice calm and inflected with an urban cadence no one could imagine coming out of the mouth of this born-and-bred country boy. I like to suck dick, he says, then giggles. Sergeant Johnson, says Kathy. Suck my dick, you bitch, Johnson suggests, giggling again. His eyeballs begin rolling around like ball bearings. Zonkers rules this shithole. All you pigs can fuck off and die. Watch and learn from this big hog. Sergeant Johnson! Maury! Johnson's eyes snap back into focus, growing wide. The instruments go crazy. The sergeant twitches and the EKG emits the continuous beep, indicating his heart has stopped. Kathy and the nurses begin frantic efforts to bring the big man back to life. Rick doesn't bother waiting to see how it turns out. Go back to your units, he tells the COs. Put the whole facility on lockdown. Rick and Kathy sit at a booth in a dark bar. Each grasps a beer and wears a weary expression. In the background are country music and the sounds of a pool game. The two appear lost in their own thoughts, but occasionally make eye contact, as if to check in. Looking at his drink, Rick says, I'd love to stay here all night and get hammered, but tomorrow, when I show up at work and try to figure out how we failed today, I've got to be thinking straight. I know they were when they planned it. I can't stop thinking about his eyes, Kathy says. He was aware. How horrifying those last few moments must have been for him, and I... Rick shakes his head, discouraging her from going further in that direction. Her face firms up. 
He have kids? Rick asks. She shrugs. I didn't know him, but sure. Eighteen or older, they all do, whether they're born again or blitzed out on drugs or implants. My high school was filled with guys like Johnson. So now losing daddy will fuck up the kids, too. Best case scenario, they show up in ten years as new CEOs, with kids of their own and chips on their shoulders. Otherwise, my prediction? Future implant fiends. Rick absently rubs the scar at the base of his skull. Kathy's eyes reflect curiosity. No, he says. I willingly surrendered my reality for a while, but getting Linda blared like that is a whole other thing. Besides, staff are constantly checked for implants. A micro-drone got Johnson. I guarantee it. It just... He pounds his fist on the table. It pisses me off. There were at least two major security failures today. The cameras and the drone. I made recommendations on both months ago. The warden said he'd pass them up the chain. He pauses for a drink. But there's no money, so staff die. Some of the guys near the pool tables look over, perhaps responding to Rick's raised voice, perhaps not. It's something Rick's used to and Kathy's becoming accustomed to, at least when she's with him. Rick glances their way but is too defeated today to press the matter. The men turn their attention back to the game, and Rick leans in toward her. The real reason I'm going to call it quits is because, even more than the how, we need to understand who and why, and honestly, I have no clue about either. It was the Zonkers, Kathy says. The Zonkers are one of the nation's most notorious implant gangs, both inside and outside prison. The Zonkers are at war with LPH, the gang that controls virtually all the drug activity in the prison. Or LPH, Rick responds, making it look like the Zonkers, or the Zonkers wanting us to think it was LPH making it look like the Zonkers, or... You overthink this stuff. Rick shakes his head. Okay, what about motive? They didn't like Sergeant Johnson, she offers. They thought he was an asshole. He was an asshole, Rick laughs. But no, they're too disciplined for that. To show their dominance, then. The Zonkers are taking out LPH, and they can take us out, too. Why antagonize us now? Rick asks. They're already winning. They zombified that distributor in Unit B last week. They assassinated Morales. Because they're monsters? Sure, but cunning and crafty ones. Look, what does the staff want? The staff? Kathy rolls her eyes. I don't know. To get through the day? Rick smirks. No, I mean strategically. He gives her a second to ponder, then says, We can't let either side win. Not LPH, not the Zonkers. They need to fight each other forever. Even if all that fighting keeps your unit busy. The cons know where we stand. So what are they hoping that killing a staff member will accomplish? I don't know. I don't think about it that way. I can't relate to them like... You can. She's afraid she's offended him and quickly adds in a breathy whisper, Locutus. Her phone buzzes. It's Mike, she says, and shrugs. I should get home. Yeah. Rick downs the last of his beer. Let's call it a night. A dozen senior prison staff sit around a battered conference table in a dismal gray room. It's early and the space is littered with coffee cups and bottles of Mountain Dew. Standing in front of them is Warden James Hargill, a stocky man in his fifties with a bad comb-over. His rumpled shirt and bloodshot eyes give him the appearance of not having slept. I visited with Sergeant Johnson's family last night, he says. 
Rick and Kathy on opposite sides of the table exchange a glance. They can only imagine how difficult that was. I'll let you know when I hear about arrangements. The staff look down, dreading facing the family at the funeral. We're still waiting on autopsy and toxicology, but it's pretty obvious that a micro-drone was targeted at the sergeant. We need a thorough review of security procedures ASAP. The deputy warden will coordinate units on this. The warden pauses and takes a deep breath. I have another bit of bad news. The lieutenant governor will be visiting the facility later this week. Everyone groans. The press is interested in this case, and that means so are the politicians. He trails off, shrugs, then begins again. Folks, check in with your people today. Hand out some praise. Listen, it's cliche, but it's true. Without teamwork and trust, we may as well hand the keys to the inmates. Warden, Major Martin breaks in. He's the head of special custody units and one of the longest-serving COs in the facility. When I talk to my people, they're going to ask me what we're planning to do. They're going to want to break some heads. And frankly, so do I. The response is still being determined, Hargill says. That's what you tell them. Respectfully, Warden, Martin says, doing nothing makes us look weak. Oh, I agree, the Warden responds, face reddening, but acting deliberately shows our strength. Now that's it. Everyone stay safe. The meeting breaks up. The Warden gestures for Rick to stay, and once they're alone, says, You know that Martin speaks for pretty much everyone. The Lieutenant Governor will add his strong voice to that chorus. I want what we do to make sense, but there's not much time to figure it out. I'm on it. Hargill hesitates, then says, Also, I've heard rumors that the Lieutenant Governor may use this visit to unveil an innovation, a new technology of some kind. Maybe something we want, maybe not. Just be ready. Got it. The Warden looks as though he wants to say something else to Rick, but then merely nods. That's all. Inmates, clad in white jumpsuits, are working in the prison kitchen. Isaac Adoti, an older convict missing his left arm below the elbow, leaves his station, walking to the back to retrieve some cans off a shelf. Noticing their arrangement, he tenses, glances toward the food prep area to ensure he isn't being watched, and heads further back to a large storeroom. He closes the door behind him. Once it clicks shut, a figure, clad in a black uniform, face covered, emerges from the shadows. Locutus, says Isaac. They stand silent for a moment, then Locutus says, You'll be missed in about two minutes. You know why I'm here. Isaac doesn't look directly at Locutus, even though the man's identity is hidden from all his confidential sources. Adoti's nervous, more so than usual. Khan's killing staff is the kind of thing that leads to serious beatings, to escapes ending in bullet-ridden bodies, to inmates starving to death in isolation cells. Isaac Adoti knows what staff are capable of, to say nothing of the inmates themselves. He stays quiet. I'll tell you something, then, says Locutus. The Zonkers were mentioned by name. Now Isaac looks at him. No. No. Rather than the clumsy way it worked at many prisons, Locutus has studied techniques utilized by totalitarian regimes with the most pervasive and effective secret police forces, the NKVD, Stasi, Gestapo, to cultivate a deliberate and often redundant set of sources who serve not just for information, but also as a quality control on one another. 
Isaac is part of a cohort of cons of a certain vintage missing fingers, limbs, or eyes, because that's all it took to remove an implant back then, before gangs like the Zonkers started inserting them into vital organs, making them out of organics, or fusing them directly onto the brain so there was no way to deactivate them short of death. Adoti's implant-free but maintains an OG-style level of respect, and that's his utility. I heard nothing. I know nothing. Adoti has thus far been a reliable source. After decades behind bars, he hopes informing will help him earn parole. Locutus is carefully assessing his value in the context of recent events. Of course not. But now that it's done? Isaac shakes his head. It was LPH. This is speculation, or you know. A second's hesitation, then. I know. How? Isaac looks down. LPH wants the staff to crack down on the Zonkers. It'll keep everyone else busy while they regroup. He glances apprehensively toward the door. I need to get back. Locutus pauses a second. Isaac didn't answer the question, but he's heard enough. He nods. Go. Rick stops by the infirmary. Kathy stands amidst boxes of equipment and instruments, looking beleaguered. I'm trying to set up a microdrone response bay, she explains, so we're not caught flat-footed next time. Smart, he says. Any word on Johnson's autopsy or toxicology? She shakes her head. He steps closer and lowers his voice. Locutus needs to meet with Hivemind. Can you arrange it? It'll take a day or two, but sure, she says, then whispers. You're going to ask the Zonkers directly if they're responsible? No, he says. I'm going to test it. He leaves the infirmary and walks down one of the main corridors. It's unnaturally quiet. Besides a few inmates who, under close supervision, push food or laundry carts, most are still on 24-7 lockdown. Rick thinks through his next steps. He has no formal training as an investigator, but over the years has brought a range of tactics to bear on figuring things out, from Sherlock Holmes-style deduction to Bayes' theorem. Caffeine helps all such inference, and he ducks into the break room. Shift is changing, and half a dozen COs are hanging out, shooting the shit and leaning on the vending machines. Rick experiences a sense of deja vu. How many times, as a nerdy kid in Corona, book smart but not yet with the street smarts he picked up far from the streets, was there a pack of toughs standing around, preventing him from getting somewhere? Not fitting in was a metaphor for his youth. Some things, he thinks, never change. The COs notice Rick and stop talking. He nods curtly and begins plunking change into one of the soda machines. Most of these guards were probably little kids back when prescription painkillers, which had been drastically overprescribed and led to an epidemic of addiction and overdoses in rural areas like this, became expensive and difficult to get. The drug cartels seized the opportunity and rushed in with heroin, leading to the even more destructive opioid epidemic. At the same time this was happening, and a universe away, Google and Apple had introduced the first implants. They were breathtaking, and yet, in a way, banal. They did what iPhones and Fitbits did, and not much more. But you were always connected. Could dictate texts with your thought, browse Facebook on the inside of your retina, a little incision in your arm, and you were done. Rick miraculously escaped Queens for Stanford University. Talk about a different universe though he struggled there, too. The temptation to jailbreak and enhance those initial corporate offerings was irresistible, 
especially for a kid like him. The irony was that he'd escaped the drugs and crime of his youth only to flunk out of college and almost wreck his health by being sucked into immersive and illegal 3D gaming experiences. Stanford undergrads weren't the only ones who figured out how to modify implants, then create their own and make them cheaper. Soon people weren't only getting strung out on them, they were organizing criminal activity, too. The drug cartels tried co-opting the illegal implant business. When that didn't work, they began fighting it. The media reported on the violence, relishing the ironic label, War for Drugs. The first inmates who were part of organized implant gangs, Isaac Adodi's contemporaries, began showing up in prisons around that time. Yet even those were much simpler times than these. Rick's Mountain Dew drops from the machine and one of the CEOs steps behind him, blocking his departure. These guys, Rick knows, need to be handled just like inmates. Show respect, but never back down. Rick turns. It's the kid from the infirmary, the one with the beer belly and pimples. They stand, faces a foot apart, staring each other down. You didn't think much of Maury Johnson, the CO challenges him. Did you, Enrique? First, Rick responds, determined not to lose his cool, though this bumpkin used his first name like it was a slur. You address me as special investigator. Always. Your feelings aside, it's a security matter. Got that, son? He pauses. And Maury Johnson was a blowhard and a bigot. The fat CEO's eyes widen as Rick's narrow. He was also my colleague, and what happened to him, and the failure it represents, shakes me to the core. Without breaking eye contact, he steps past and leaves the break room. The men are silent as he departs. Outside, he tries to loosen his jaw and soften his eyes, having a tough time of it. He understands the origins of their anger. They're eager to assign blame for Johnson's death and to take revenge for it, Rick's in the center of both. Plus, he's an outsider, despite having been on the staff for nearly 15 years. It's not right, but it's how they see it. He'd rate his performance in there a solid B, he thinks. Or maybe B+, since he wasn't acting. An inmate enters the prison infirmary, limping slightly. He's pale and slender, with close-cropped hair and glasses. His exposed neck and arms are covered with half-inch scars. H465833, Gorman, he says, here for a follow-up with Dr. Davis. A nurse leads him to one of the few private examination rooms. They pass Kathy, who's with another inmate patient. Be with you in a few moments, Mr. Gorman, she says. Gorman walks into the examination room, and the nurse shuts the door behind him. Inside the room, Locutus stands against the wall. Gorman is nonchalant. Tell me what's on your minds, Locutus, and I'll tell you what's on mine. He laughs. I've mind. Locutus acknowledges him. Are we alone? Alone? Hive mind can't help but play coy. He glances down at his scar-covered arms, turns them around as though you could see an implant if you just stared hard enough. You look like the Grim Reaper in that getup, you know, he observes, then adds with a wry grin, not exactly a reassuring sight in a doctor's office. Locutus didn't share the mirth. I'm trying to understand why the Zonkers killed Maury Johnson. The Zonkers had nothing to do with it. Clumsy attempts to make it appear that way notwithstanding. Locutus remains silent. Frankly, Locutus, Hivemind says, I'm surprised that someone with your investigative abilities isn't able to see through it. 
The possibility of other perpetrators was considered, Locutus tells him, considered and rejected based on additional evidence. What additional evidence? Hivemind is growing irritated. Locutus says nothing, takes a long, deliberate breath. Snitches? Hivemind demands. His teeth are bared, his eyes glitter darkly. Forgettable inmate Gorman is gone from the scene. Locutus chooses his words carefully. Every single Khan I've spoken with, everyone, points to the Zonkers. I'm confident, Hivemind says, that if the Zonkers were to do such a thing, they would proudly take credit for it. Unless they want staff to focus attention elsewhere for some reason. Really, Hivemind asks, not one of your snitches, even the obviously self-interested ones, pointed the finger elsewhere? Locutus shrugs. You? I should count as more than one, and I'm not a snip. Kathy enters the exam room and he breaks off. Locutus nods at her, signaling it's all right for her to stay. One last thing, Locutus, Hivemind says as Kathy turns her attention to him. What? Resistance is futile, he chuckles. This is not how I wanted to spend my Thursday, Lieutenant Governor Sam Harris tells Warden Hargill. Rick watches the warden's mouth work, no doubt desperately trying to suppress responding that it's not how he wants to spend it either. In fairness, while Harris's visit is certainly political, it hasn't been a fun day for him. A four-hour drive from the Capitol, a private meeting with Sergeant Johnson's family, hours of briefings, and a press conference still to come. They're wrapping up a meeting with senior staff, including Rick and Kathy, and the lieutenant governor has made his displeasure with the lack of immediate hardcore crackdown abundantly clear. I'm extremely concerned about micro-drones in this facility, the lieutenant governor says. You're right to be, says Rick. They're very difficult to detect and prevent, especially when they're made partly with organics. Any inmate with an implant who moves through the facility is potentially collecting data on layouts, floor plans, locations. Those data can be transmitted to a microdrone so when it gets in here it knows just where to go. If you wanted to completely secure the facility, you'd need to turn all entrances into magnetized lock chambers and blow random puffs of air through them. You'd also need to set up special water filtration and... How much would all this cost? The lieutenant governor interrupts. I haven't priced it out, sir. Why is everything you guys suggest so expensive? Rick reddens. The question is unfair. Rick once suggested that the housing unit where most implant inmates live disable the automatic lock system and go back to using keys. That would have cost next to nothing. They balk at spending money, but politicians have an undeniable fetish for technology. Quite often... Rick thinks that more technology plays into the hands of the Zonkers, who are smarter and better resourced than the State Department of Corrections will ever be. They don't take weekends or holidays either. Look, Harris says, isn't the real problem unauthorized transmission of information by inmates with implants? The warden nods. And all your efforts to find, remove, or jam those implants? Nowhere near perfect, Warden Hargill admits. Implants are a major problem here, just like they are outside. We've come a long way since the days when the main worries were shanks, or inmates walking around with cell phones stashed up their butts, haven't we? Lieutenant Governor Harris smiles. I brought you all a present. Come with me. They leave the staff room and follow him to the prison's main loading area, where a small crane lifts a large covered object off a flatbed truck, 
Even the warden looks surprised. The object touches the ground with a boom and the cover comes off, revealing what appears to be a small shipping container. Well? Harris is enjoying the suspense. What's inside? asks the warden. Harris chuckles. Nothing yet. But soon, he gestures. Behold, the box. The box blocks the transmission of all electromagnetic radiation in or out. So you take your problematic con with an implant, you put him in the box, and voila! No more problem. Until you take him out of the box, Kathy murmurs. Harris begins a circuit around the box. There's a slot for food trays and laundry. There's a hookup for water for the shower and toilet inside. Ventilation comes through the top and is mostly recirculatory. Temperature control is in this side panel here. He looks at Kathy. You don't take him out of the box. Everyone gawks. Any other questions along those lines, Harris says, smiling, are matters for the state attorney general's office. He looks at Hargill. I've got about a dozen more of these on the way. The warden is speechless. Any chance we could do the press conference out here? The lieutenant governor asks and winks. A message from Kathy awaits Rick when he arrives the next morning, clutching a liter of Mountain Dew. Come down to the infirmary right away. Once there, she leads him toward the cold room. He sighs. Last night, she says, microdrone, just like the one that got Sergeant Johnson from what we can tell. She unzips the bag on one of the gurneys, revealing a body. She grips the tag on the bag, holds it up to read it. Don't bother, Rick says. His name is Isaac Adoti. You know him. She's watching his face. And you're not surprised. Rick shakes his head. I guess he was deemed unreliable. Another microdrone death, Kathy says. The warden is apoplectic. He's already under incredible pressure to act. He can act. Now I know who killed Johnson. Let's go see the warden. He has a chance to put the lieutenant governor's little invention to use. Rick doesn't move, nor take his eyes off a doty. You're not happy to have solved the mystery? Kathy asks. Whatever partial responsibility I may have for Johnson, this man right here, his blood is entirely on my hands. An hour later, Locutus follows a platoon of beefy sort officers in full riot gear. With stomping boots, they march into the most restrictive level of the prison's administrative segregation unit. Fluorescent lights illuminate the sterile space. Inmates yell and bang their doors as the team comes through, adding to the echoing boom. With military precision, the team halts before a cell door. The sort leader slides open the window slot, revealing the convict inside. At first glance, he appears unworthy of the show of force. Trim and bald, perhaps forty years old, he's naked, sitting upright on the bench that also serves as his bed. His most distinctive feature is a slight facial asymmetry, as though he suffered a mild stroke or palsy. That face reflects a profound indifference to the deafening din outside. Inmate, stand and face away from the door, shouts the sort leader. The man complies, but slowly and distractedly, as if his attention is elsewhere. The door opens and four guards rush in. One cuffs him, two shackle him, the fourth stands post. They swivel him and frog-march him out of the cell. It's been years since Locutus has seen Legion, perhaps the most dangerous person in the prison, but he appears unchanged by his time in solitary. His face remains neutral, eyes unfocused. 
He maintains a quiet dignity in his bearing even as the shackles force him to shuffle forward, as though the security escort is an honor guard. Legion squints as he's led outside. Locutus wonders whether he notices, much less appreciates, the sunlight and fresh air, the first he's experienced in a long time, and quite likely the last. The man's mind is elsewhere, issuing orders and rendering judgments, things he deems worthier of his attention than whatever might be happening to his body right now. Kathy and Hargill join the cavalcade in the narrow passage between buildings. Legion registers a flicker of respectful recognition, one chief executive to another. Warden, he says by way of greeting, has the governor granted my pardon? He smirks. The warden looks away. Back inside, they crowd into a large freight elevator and descend into the basement level. The group makes its way past the laundry facility and the main boiler. There, out in the middle of an empty storage area, sits the box. Legion is unshackled and shoved in. His wrists appear in the food slot. This drill is second nature to him, and the guards uncuff him. The food slot is slammed shut. Power her up, orders the warden. The ventilation system comes on with a hiss, the water with a rush. Job done, the sort team marches off. Locutus, Kathy, and Hargill remain. The box has no frills. There are no cameras inside, and they can't see what the prisoner is up to. After a few moments, Legion's voice comes muffled through the food slot. Warden, there's something wrong with this cell. Legion pounds on the door. I'm guessing it's doing its job quite well, Hargill says. I'm drowning in here. I'm suffocating. Get me the fuck out of here, Warden. Locutus! Rick can imagine all too well what it's like. The sudden separation from the network. The empty incompleteness of being truly alone, as if cast adrift on a cloudy, moonless night. For someone like Legion, not just part of the network but its center, it must be akin to the void of a sensory deprivation chamber. Or like losing a limb. Isaac Adoti would understand. The warden approaches the cell and taps gently, a mockery of the increasingly agitated banging on the other side. Maury Johnson had a wife, four kids, and a mom with Alzheimer's. Think about that for a while, you son of a bitch. Warden! Locutus! Legion's dignity and composure have vanished. He's nothing but an enraged con now his voice tinged with the same city-inflected accent that spoke Maury Johnson's obscene last words. I can't transmit. I can't receive. Rick removes his locutus headgear. He and Kathy exchange a smile. Kudos to Lieutenant Governor Harris, he thinks, even if the man is a huge prick. Maybe he should knock off early for some celebratory beers. Maybe Kathy will join him. Motherfuckers. I'll order a micro-drone that will shred your insides until you beg for death. What happened to Johnson is nothing. The warden begins walking off. Rot in hell, he mumbles. Rick and Kathy follow the warden. Hey, special investigator. Locutus. Rick. Enrique Duarte. Rick stops cold. His veins turn to ice. Kathy, with a gasp, grabs his arm. Legion, the leader of the Zonker's implant gang, knows his identity. You're a dead man. 
Josh Trapani's day jobs have included stints at Washington, D.C. think tanks and associations, at USDA, and as a science fellow for a U.S. senator. He helped start the Washington Independent Review of Books and served as its first managing editor. Trained as a paleontologist, Josh's research applied quantitative methods to understanding morphological evolution, and he performed fieldwork in the U.S., Mexico, and Ethiopia. Josh has published a dozen peer-reviewed papers, as well as essays and opinion pieces in science policy venues and the New York Daily News op-ed page. His fiction and humor have appeared, or will soon appear, in The Big Jewel, The Del Sol Review, Neutrons, Protons, and Issues in Science and Technology. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on iTunes as it helps us find a bigger audience. For more information on Brick Moon and special offers, sign up for the Brick Moon Fiction newsletter at brickmoonfiction.com. Thank you for listening.